Today I want to talk about something that is germane to the, the Passover itself. It is examining yourself, to examine yourself. Turn to 1 Corinthians 11, if you would, and we will start right off with the uh, scripture that tells us to do just that in relation to keeping the Passover. In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 27, of course, this is Paul referencing the uh, record that we have in the Gospels, but here he says, So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment upon themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. That means die. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. With that said, it is possible to take the Passover, to go through the motions, if you will, to take the wine, to take the bread, to go through the Passover service in a manner that is unworthy. And clearly, from what we've just read, that is not good. It is not something that God wants to see. It is possible to take it in a manner that is unworthy, um, to take it in a way that is perhaps irreverent, perhaps a wrong attitude. Now, if we look at the book of Corinthians, and we have in the past, but I'm going to kind of brush up a little bit on this, the immediate example that we have here is of this congregation in Corinth. And they were keeping the Passover, but when you read what Paul has to say to them, they were keeping it in a manner that was not so good. They were actually kind of keeping it as if it were a Greco-Roman dinner party. And when you read into, you know, how they used to do things back then and how they organized their dinner parties, that's some of the problems that Paul points out to them. You're doing this and you're doing that. For example, at a Greco-Roman dinner party, class distinction was a huge factor. So there would be preferential seating and there would be separate rooms for members based on their social status. And Paul mentions this to the people in Corinth and says, hey, look, this is what you're doing. The wealthy would usually get served first. They would get the best portions of meat or stuff like that. Uh, they would get better food, better drink. And as Paul says, if you read the context, and I'll let you do that on your own, some people were ending up eating scraps while others indulged themselves so much in the finer things of life that they even got drunk. Uh, let's zero in on that one, verse 17 through 22. He said, you know, leading up to the scripture that we read first, in the following directives, I have no praise for you, speaking to Corinth, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent I believe it. No doubt, there have to be differences among you to show which of you has God's approval. I think he's being sarcastic there. So then, when you come together, is it not the Lord's supper you eat? For when you are all eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry. As a result, one person gets drunk. Don't you have your own homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you in this matter? 
Shall I praise you? Certainly not. There's more that's there, but that kind of gives you an example of what I'm talking about. He's getting on their case about how they are conducting themselves among one another and uh, drawing a lot of emphasis on the distinctions that they're trying to make among one another, probably based on wealth, be a big one. Citizenship was a big thing, you know. Um, are you a Roman? Oh, well, the Romans sit over here and they get the better food and things like that. Paul warned them to examine themselves, to get in the right frame of mind. And to get in that right frame of mind, they would need to have, take a good, hard look at their motives, their agendas, their prejudices, their snobbery, their vanity, their pride. That's the kind of stuff that they were going to have to deal with. And if you look at the context, clearly that is what was bugging, or that was the problem with this congregation. So that's the example we have here. And I'm not saying that as if to say, well, Raleigh, I think you have the same problems. That's not my point. My point is that the context we have here is Paul drilling down with these folks and saying, okay, you've got some issues. You need to deal with them. God detests vanity and pride and self-exaltation. He can't stand it. He has zero tolerance for it. Paul's call to this group of people, and I think the call goes out to us, to examine themselves, included a call to recognize, to realize, uh, the word there is discern, the body of Christ. The body of Christ. He's calling their attention to it. Discern the body of Christ. Get a handle on what you're dealing with here. What's the reality of what you're dealing with here? Each member of the congregation, and that was true for them and it's true for us, each member of the congregation was a member of the body of Christ. But how they were treating one another, and this is Corinth we're talking about here, how they were treating one another did not reflect that understanding. They weren't acting one to another as if this is the way they looked at one another. Now, you, you, know, you can interpret this however you want, and uh, you know, when you go through the examination of yourself, you might think, yeah, you know, I haven't done this, or I shouldn't treat person X like that. Um, and I'm not saying you shouldn't think about things like that. I'm just saying that I'm not trying to cast all Corinthians' problems on you. That's, that's all I'm getting at. So this group here in Corinth we're just not treating each other as if they were all seeing one another as members of the body of Christ. They had all kinds of social posturing. They were exalting some, humiliating others, which is contrary to the love for one another that Jesus has commanded us and commanded them to practice. Turn to 1 Corinthians 10, verses 16 and 17. Another comment here that he makes that clearly to me indicates that <clears throat> he was writing this letter with the spring holy day season in mind. First Corinthians 10 verses 16 and 17. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And so here I believe he's talking about the blood that is represented by the cup at Passover. And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, 
We who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. Sharing together in the life of Christ, his blood, and jointly participating in the body of Christ, the one loaf, are the spiritual realities, what we experience on a regular basis, of which we are reminded each year when we take the Passover. It's a big part of the Passover and the whole call to remembrance. Remember these important things, kind of the overarching message of the Passover. To examine ourselves in preparation for Passover means to examine how we treat one another within the congregation, say, or perhaps the entire Church of God. Now, there's other kinds of examination. There's a very deep personal examination. Turn to 1 Corinthians 6, verses 15 through 20. Paul writes, again, to this same group of people, and he's writing to them now about very personal stuff, although they've made the, their decision to bring it out into the open, but uh, he's talking to them about some of their sexual practices here. And in uh, verse 15, he says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? So going back to that same idea of the body of Christ, discerning the body of Christ. But now he's talking to the individuals. And he's saying, you as an individual, do you not realize that your body is part of the body of Christ? Shall I then take the members or the parts of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. And this is, this is the part I want to really zoom in on here. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. So to discern the body of Christ, we looked at as perhaps you know, the group, the congregation, the church. But to discern the body of Christ is also to have a good understanding of who you are and how you fit into the whole picture on an individual, very personal way. And he's talking here about, he's talking about sexual sin, but I would like to extend that there are, there's a lot of stuff that takes place between the two ears, right, that no one else ever knows about. But it needs to be dealt with because it can be a problem. To discern, to recognize, or to set apart as special the body of Christ can also imply very personal introspection, looking inward at yourself. Who am I? Wrong attitudes can fester and grow and you know, just to end up ruining your life. I'm talking about things like greed or covetousness or lust, like the one that Paul is addressing here. But all those take place in your head. You know, Paul's writing here about sexual sin. Okay, lust. But covetousness, right? You can have deeply rooted problems with covetousness and no one else is ever really going to know about it, are they? Because it's just happening in your head, but it's a problem. All right? 
Um, what was the other one I mentioned? Uh, greed, covetousness, pride, vanity. All these can remain hidden inside, unseen by other people, not something that they just point out and say, aha, he is a covetous man. Yet, they can do great damage and great harm to the inner person, to the inner person. They can have a terrible impact on that relationship between the, you know, God's Holy Spirit is to have with the Spirit within you. And so, in the same way, causing harm to our own bodies, uh, our own spirit, which God considers to be his own possession and dwelling place. So it's an area of self-examination that should also be seriously considered. And again, the, the list of, of things that I have there is you know, lustful fantasies, love of money, and another one I'd like to throw out there, despising of authority. Despising of authority. And that can be a real problem that can just sit in your brain and cause terrible problems down the road, but no one's going to see it except you until that day when it's too late. Or maybe it's not too late, but it's going to be a really big problem to get dealt with. And these are the sort of things that can be lurking within that need to be examined as part of the body of Christ, as part of discerning the body of Christ, who you are, how you fit into the body of Christ, and the damage that you can do to yourself and to the inner person. To examine ourselves in preparation for Passover also then means, I say, to examine our innermost thoughts and attitudes so that we might rule over them, not let them run us, run our lives, run our thoughts, but that we rule over them through the guidance and the power of the Holy Spirit, which is Christ in us. Where do we begin? Where do we begin? Well, let's uh, take a look at Psalm 26, verse 2. Test me, Lord. This is a prayer. You know, the book of Psalms is a book of songs, but it's also a book of prayers. This is a prayer, David. He says, test me, Lord, and try me. Examine my heart and mind. David prayed, and he asked God to look into his heart and mind. Now, heart and mind, what, is, what does that mean? What are we getting at with heart and mind? What is, what is the, the Hebrew getting at here? Because, you know, of course, it was originally written in Hebrew. We just have an English translation. There are two words there, uh, kilia and labe, right? I'm not going to go too deep into the Hebrew. I'm, you know, not a Hebrew scholar, but I looked these up, and I just wanted to, you know, kind of dig a little bit on them. Kilia is the emotions, and then the other one, labe, is thoughts. All right? It's the heart and mind. Emotions and thoughts. And they are a little different. They can be. There's probably a lot of overlap there. But emotions and thoughts, well, let's take a look at emotions. Some of the really rotten stuff that can take root in you as a person is actually beneath or below the level of um, your rational or conscious thought. You know that, because sometimes stuff happens and you just... <coughs> you react, you know what I mean? It's just a reaction. You just automatically react to certain things. That's emotion. And I'm oversimplifying. So, uh, but to make a point, 
some of the stuff, some of the wrong stuff, some of the bad stuff that goes on up here in your head is not stuff that you're consciously thinking about. It's just, it's a, it's a reaction. Um, you know, you, you might say something like, well, I know it doesn't make sense, but that's how I feel about it. Have you ever said something like that? It doesn't make sense, but I, it just bugs me. Okay, so there's stuff can go on in your head that you're not thinking through. It's just happening. All right, I'm going to categorize that as emotions. Again, I'm simplifying. Then there's thoughts. The other word, labe. Thoughts. Some of the stuff that lodges in your brain is a result of rationalization. Rationalization. Something you have thought through very carefully. Very carefully. Uh, I'm going to categorize it in, in this negative way as being an application of materialist logic. Okay? And all that highfalutin sound and stuff. You know, what you can discern with your, uh, your senses, your eyes, your, your nose, your, your mouth, you know, the sensual things, and you apply rationalization to things in life. Here, here's, a, here's what I came up with. Uh, you might find yourself saying, I know God said no, but what I'm doing seems like the most logical thing to do. I've thought it through, and there's a lot of logic behind this. I know God says don't, but it seems so logical. That would be an instance of thought. Okay, so we've got emotion, and we've got thought. And so there's all kinds of different ways that we can get off track, and we can have stuff lodged in our brain that we need to address and deal with. And we can find it, I believe do find it, hard almost impossible, to be objective. To be objective about what's going on in our own head. It's just not easy to kind of step outside yourself and say, well, you know, I have an honest opinion of this person. No, that's not how we're at. We're just, we're right in the middle of it and we kind of get lost in the, lost in the hustle and bustle of life. And we don't have an objective outlook about what's going on in our head. We need to pray and ask God to show us what our hearts and minds are really like. That is where we'll get the objective opinion, the objective outlook. If we want to see ourselves, going back to what we read in Psalm 26, we have to go to God and say, can you help me here? I'm not, clearly not going to be able to be objective about myself. Can you help me? Will you help me? And God's answer to you is going to be, sure, where do you want to get started? <laughs> now, the good thing about God, of course, is that he's, he's not going to uh, lay it all on you all at once. And I think this is something that I've, I've noticed with people. I've talked to people over the years, and they feel like, well, I just feel like I just, you know, I wasn't a good person last year, but I'm so much better now. And like, well, yeah, you should be, you know, because God doesn't dump it all on you at first. I'm glad. I think I would have been totally blown away if God had shown me the full depth of who I am right off the bat. I maybe, maybe I would have bounced right out. Right out. Uh, so he let me kind of grind away thinking I was pretty hot stuff for you know, years. <laughs> it kind of worked on me. <laughs> worked on me. And there are things, like I mentioned with the emotions, there are things that we might not even be aware of. So there might be things that we're kind of, you know, I know I'm, I'm thinking wrong about this. And there might be things that we have in our minds that we don't even know about. 
Either way, we need an objective opinion, an outside opinion, if you will. The examination process begins with the understanding that God must and will reveal to us our spiritual state. He knows and is aware of the shifting currents and the undertoes of the human heart and mind. Psalm 19, verse 12. This whole psalm would be, be uh, great. I'm just going to cut to the chase at the end here. But who can discern their own errors? Who can discern their own errors? Who can look into their own mind? Be objective about it. Prayer goes on, forgive my hidden faults, the things I can't even see. Keep your servant from willful sins that they may not rule over me. Then I will be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Some of our issues and some of the things that are, need to be examined and addressed are obvious. Some are very obvious. And, you know, <laughs> sometimes you look at your life, I ah, know I shouldn't be doing that. And then there's other stuff in your life that's not obvious. I had no idea. Isn't there? Isn't that how it works? Yeah. So some are hidden and some are not. Some of them need God's assistance. Well, actually all of them need God's assistance to identify and root out so that they don't rule over us, dominate our lives. First Kings, if you would. Verse 38. This is part of the dedication of the temple prayer that Solomon addressed. And there's long prayer, and there's a lot of stuff in there. And in verse 38, he says, on behalf of the people, knowing what might come, he says, when a prayer or a plea is made by anyone among your people, Israel, being aware of the afflictions of their own hearts and spreading out their hands toward this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place, forgive and act, Deal with everyone according to all they do, since you know their hearts, for you alone know every human heart. Here we've got a scenario of a person coming to God with all their afflictions, stuff that's happening in their lives, the afflictions of the heart. And Solomon asks that God would forgive and help, or act, as he says, giving that person justice and mercy, since God alone knows the truth. God alone knows the truth and the whole truth. God knows the inner motivations of the human heart and mind, the thoughts and the emotions. Let me give you an example. Uh, as, as a pastor, sometimes... I'm talking or counseling with a person, and just between you and me, they're doing or sometimes saying crazy, illogical stuff. It happens. So I'm talking to someone, and all this is coming out, and it's, sometimes it's crazy, sometimes it's illogical. They tell me what they're doing with their life, thoughts that they're thinking, right? And I'm listening, and then... Sometimes it happens that at a certain point I find out some dark secret, if you want to call it that, some dark secret of their past, all right? Maybe they were abused or neglected as a child. Um, maybe they had some other traumatic event in youth. Very often it goes back to something long ago. 
And I, I say to myself, aha, that's why they react that way. And I didn't know at first. And so I, I feel better able to understand, all right? Now, as a fellow human being, though, I got to tell you that what I see, even when I get to that point where I see anything, is like the tip of that iceberg floating by, you know? And I might see that and think, ah, well, that's why. And I, you know, kind of think, well, I've learned something. But I'm just seeing that tip of the iceberg floating by. That's all I can see. That is it. Just this little shark fin of ice floating along when there's this huge mountain of ice underneath ready to rip the hull of the Titanic apart. And in my limited human state, I'll never know. I will never know. And I just have to live with that, and we all have to live with that. I will never know. But God, your Father, he can see the whole iceberg, if you will. <laughs> you like the analogy. He can see the whole iceberg. doesn't just see the little crest of ice floating by that's visible to the eye. He knows the entire heart, everything that's hidden and not seen. My best advice to anyone, when it boils down to the, you know, if you don't like the cut to the chase analogy, my advice is usually, and should be, to point you or them or whoever I'm talking to, to God, right? I, I kick it upstairs. You know, well, you really need to you know, address this with God. I can see this, I can see that, and, but it's very limited. My best advice is to point you to him, to pray and to ask and seek his input and his direction and his advice. Turn to Psalm 139. Another great psalm, if you want to consider this subject on your own uh, in personal preparation for Passover, Psalm 139, really good one. But we're going to just dive in and take a couple of verses out here, uh, verse 23 and 24. The overall psalm is all about how can I hide from God? I gotta be crazy, if I gotta be a fool, if I think I can you know, like hide in the closet and God will pass by and not know that I'm there. Psalm 139, verse 23 and 24. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Again, David wanted God to know his heart. And if read through the rest of the psalm, and he goes over all the various scenarios. You know, if I think I can run off to Peru, if I think I can, you know, hide in the closet, like I said, there is no place that he can hide. God sees you anyway. May as well get with the program. But that's kind of, you know, a negative way of looking at it. God, uh, sorry, David is actively asking God, search me. See if there is an, something offensive in me. Help me deal with it. Help me deal with it. Test me. Know my anxious thoughts and lead me in the way everlasting. Are there parts of you that you don't want other people to know about? Anyone? I'll got my hand up. <laughs> yeah, there are parts about me that I don't want other people to know about. Are there actions and attitudes that you would like to try to hide from God? Well, that's a little trickier, I think. Well. Yeah, I kind of feel that way, but I probably shouldn't. You know, <laughs> that's not a good idea. 
Well, God knows either way. That's the point of this psalm. God knows either way. And he can help you address those secrets and lead you to the way everlasting. That's what he wants for you because he loves you. He wants to help you. He has big plans for you. Now, the role of God's word in examination. The role of God's word in examination. If we ask God uh, to help us see areas of our life that need to be set straight. We pray like David, for example, and we ask God, you know, show me this stuff. Show me my attitudes, uh, thoughts, assumptions, unrighteous emotional patterns. How does God answer us? How does God answer us? Does he come to us in a dream? Is there a voice in your head? An omen, perhaps. A black crow flying across the... No. How does God speak to us? Now, Scripture provides records of such things that you know, I just mentioned. Dreams, voice, even omens. However, I, this is me, I'm going to put my own thoughts in this, I see them as the most rarest of, of exceptions. These are the rare exceptions when this is how God interacts with people. It does happen. Uh, I make no uh, judgment about whether it happens with you or for you or whatever, but it's, to me, the most rare of exceptions rather than the rule. And I will say, for my part, I have never experienced such things. It's never happened to me. I have never had a dream. Uh, you know, I've never heard a voice in my head or an omen. It's just not something I've ever experienced. Now, you or I might get um, a feeling or an emotion or a thought. And, you know, I can say, yeah, I've had those, <laughs> especially during prayer. Um, but in all these cases, we have a warning from God's word, which is to test the spirit, to test the spirit to test these things. So you get this, and then you got to test it. What do you test it against? What are you going to test it against? You test it against the written testimony of God's word. That is one of the purposes of Scripture. A written testimony. A written testimony against which you can test all things. Turn to Isaiah 8, verse 20. Consult God's instruction and the testimony of warning. If anyone does not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. And in the King James it says, to the law and the testimony. Go there. You know, when in doubt, check it out. So if you've got a message that's not in accordance with God's word, beware. Beware. Where? Conformity with the law and the prophets. And I would add to that, on a personal note, I would say within the boundaries and the authority and the consensus of godly leadership. Okay? And I won't get too specific, but you want to make sure that you're not the only one who reads that scripture the way you're reading it. Because I have also seen that where someone says, ah, you know, I've had this, and then they go to the Word, and they say, well, if you look at this prophecy, and you, you, know, you flip it over, and then look at it backwards, it can say what I mean, but no one else agrees with them. Then you're in 
you're on thin ice, right? You want to be, uh, let me put it this way, you want to stick with the herd. <laughs> stick with the herd. It sounds kind of, oh, like I'm a sheep. Yeah. Yeah, you're sheep. Stick with the herd. You're safe with God's flock. Okay? So put that together, you know, the testimony of God's word and the understanding that is shared by other members of the flock. If you're out there with your own interpretation of scripture and your own revelation from God, you're on thin ice. And you better have some kind of really cool miracle to back it up. 1 John 4, verse 1. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. As Jesus said, many people go out into the world and they'll say, Jesus is Lord, Jesus this and Jesus that. But are they in conformity with the word? Here he goes on and says, there is a test you can recognize the spirit of God, which is the person who acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh from God. But those who don't acknowledge that, don't listen to them. So you can read that in John 4 there. So I would add another factor here. What you think and what you see should be in conformity with the teachings of Jesus Christ. In conformity with the teachings of Jesus Christ. To accept Jesus as the Son of God, Messiah, Christ, is to accept his teachings. You can't accept the man but not what he said. It's just, that's just not logical. To accept him is to accept the whole package his teachings as well. Now let's look at the positive side of self-examination. The positive side of self-examination. So far we've considered uh, examining ourselves as sort of uh, probing for flaws, inconsistencies, weaknesses, problem areas, things like that. Troubleshooting, that kind of thing. Like, uh, say, your doctor might give you a checkup and uh, be looking for problems, right? They'll be looking for problem areas like uh, high blood pressure or high blood sugar or signs of cancer. You know, you've got a spot on your skin or something like that or a scan they do and they see some nodule in you or whatever. Or heart problems. So a doctor does that and, you know, they, they go through that kind of process. Uh, turn to Psalm 17. Verses 3 through 5. Along the same lines, David says here in his, in his prayer, this psalm, Though you, speaking to God, though you probe my heart, though you examine me at night and test me, you will find that I have planned no evil. My mouth has not transgressed, though people try to bribe me. I have kept myself from the way of the violent through what your lips have commanded. My steps have held to your paths. My feet have not stumbled. David said that God would probe and examine him and would find him to be on the right path. And that's what he's saying, right? David had his mistakes, did he not? And he had his sins. So how could he say he was on the right path? What made him okay was his repentant approach, his approach. And in like manner, when we repent, 
God forgives and he covers our sins and we're right with him. We're okay and we're forgiven. When God examines us, sometimes he's going to say, yeah, your heart is fine. You're good. I've looked over you. Your heart is fine. Your blood work looks good. Uh, you're healthy. However, you might want to you know, go out and get some more exercise. You might want to cut back and not drink so much beer. Things like that. Right? Kind of what the doctor says, right? You're healthy. Just watch this stuff. Okay? That's a pretty positive, you know, if you come back from the doctor and that's what they say, it's like, yeah, I feel pretty good about myself. Not proud, but kind of happy. I'm like, oh, good, I'm not going to die. <laughs> you could also consider self-examination in this way. And again, remember, I'm talking here about the positive side of self-examination. You could also consider your self-examination like a final exam that a college student would write. Now, in that instance, when you think about it, an examination is performed, why? Well, performed to verify that the student has learned the material. And it's a positive experience. You know, you go in, you pass the exam, yeah, you learned the material. Good, that's what the exam was for, right? It's a positive experience. Therefore, self-examination also serves a positive purpose of proving that you do know the material, which is, I believe, what David is saying here. Test me, O Lord. Check me out. Look into me. I think you're going to find that, you know, I love your ways. I, I try to stay on the path. My feet don't go off into blind alleys and things like that. Psalm 119, verses 57 through 60. You are my portion, Lord. I have promised to obey your words, and I have sought your face with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. I have considered my ways, and I have turned my steps to your statutes. I will hasten and not delay to obey your commands. David um, thought on God's word and God's way. He thought about it a lot and turned to God's law to instruct and to direct him. He was aware and he was conscious of the difference God's instruction and guidance had made and was making in his life. Let me repeat that because I want you to think about it. He was aware and conscious of the difference God's instruction and guidance made in his life. I hope you and I can say the same thing when we go through our annual checkup, if you will. We examine ourselves that we will be able to say the same thing and see the difference that has happened in our lives. Not saying that you're, you know, you haven't crossed the finish line yet, but see and know and appreciate the difference that this has made in your life. Uh, we're in Psalm 119. Let's take a look at a couple more verses, 97 uh, through 104. Oh, how love I your law. I meditate on it all day long. Your commands are always with me and make me wiser than my enemies. I have more insight than all my teachers. 
for I meditate on your statutes. I have more understanding than the elders, for I obey your precepts. I have kept my feet from every evil path so that I might obey your word. I have not departed from your laws, for you yourself have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. I gain understanding from your precepts, and therefore I hate every wrong path. God's word gave David, and can give you, wisdom and insight that cannot be obtained from the senses or from human logic. There's just stuff that God is going to give you free. It's a free gift. God is going to give you some amazing stuff that you can't learn at NC State. And you won't. Or Wake, wake Tech or whatever. <laughs> you just won't learn it there. You'll learn a lot of cool stuff there and a lot of junk, but God is prom or offering you stuff that you can't learn, and you can't even learn it at the School of Hard Knocks. You get it from God. You get it from God. And this, what David is saying is, you know, I have your law, and I meditate on it, and I think about it, and that gives me something that other people don't have if they're not having this two-way relationship with you. That's what he's saying. I have more understanding than the, even the elders of the gate. Why? Because I read your law and I do it. I learn from it. That's what he's saying. And God's word makes you wise. But it also is you know, serving other purposes to help you examine your innermost thoughts and attitudes, to help you examine how you treat other people. Let's see, verse 105. Your word is a lamp for my feet, a light on my path. I have taken an oath and confirmed it that I will follow your righteous laws. I have suffered much. Preserve my life, Lord, according to your word. Accept, Lord, the willing praise of my mouth and teach me your laws. Though I constantly take my life in my hands, I will not forget your law. The wicked have set a snare for me, but I have not strayed from your precepts. Your statutes are my heritage forever. What he means there is there's something that I can own and possess forever. They are the joy of my heart. My heart is set on keeping your decrees to the very end. When David thought about the impact God's instruction had on his life, it gave him joy. And I want the same for you. I want the same for me too. <laughs> but when he reflected on it, he said, that makes my day. That gave him joy. And I hope, I hope that this is also part of your own spiritual self-examination leading up to this year's observance of the Passover. Romans 6, verses 17 through 23. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. Let me take just a little sidebar here. When it says slaves, in the Roman Empire, they had this thing where someone, um, like if you were kind of down and out but you had skills, 
you'd find some rich guy and you'd sell yourself to him. You'd say, I'm going to sell myself to you for 10 years, okay? And you're going to do X for me. I mean, you know, room and board or whatever. And this was a way for a person to kind of start their career. They gave themselves to someone else, all right? There was other kinds of slavery going on in the Roman Empire, but read these verses thinking about that kind of slavery where someone sells themselves to another person. Like you read about in... Um, in the Pentateuch, you know, where a person goes into debt, they sell themselves to someone else to pay off their debts, okay. Verse 18, you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness, to serve righteousness. I am using an, an example from everyday life because of your human limitations, just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer yourselves as slaves or servants, you could say, to righteousness leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. And what benefit did you reap at all from the time that the things you, sorry, what benefit did you reap at that time from the things that you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The positive change that God is looking for you, looking for in you, is holiness. Holiness. A life that is set apart. That's what holiness kind of boils down to. Something that is set apart for special use and special purpose before God. Holiness, a life that is set apart through its pursuit and heartfelt adherence to the principles of godly righteousness, which leads to eternal life. The payout is awesome. <laughs> All right? That's, that's what he's saying. 1 Corinthians 3, uh, verse 11 through 15. For no one can lay any foundation other than what is already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light and it will be revealed with fire. The fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been if what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. God will examine your lives. God will examine your lives to see if you've learned the material, learned the lessons. The picture Paul's using here is a refining fire, you know, a refining fire. All the good stuff, that you and I have built in this life, we will carry with us, if you will, into eternal living. All the worthless stuff is burned up and left behind. Attitudes, ideas, outlooks that might seem oh so important to us right now. Things that we have, possessions, relationships, even those 
can seem very important to us right now by the standards of the day, by the world around us and what our peers hold to be important, what we consider to be important. And they can all seem like a big deal, but meaningless in eternity. How much time are you spending on building what lasts? How much time are you spending on building that which does not last? I know I spend way too much time <laughs> on stuff that doesn't last. It's nice to have hobbies, I suppose, you know. But I spend a lot of time, a lot of time on things that just don't last. So maybe that's part of self-examination as well. One warning about examination, all right? Warning, big warning area. Comparing yourself to others. It is very tempting. It is very tempting to examine your spiritual progress by comparing yourself to other people. This is not a good way to go about self-examination. Not a good way to do it. Luke 18, verses 9 through 14. To some who were confident in their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all that I get. And then the tax collector stood at a distance and, you know, he's very broken up about his sins. He would not even look up to heaven and he asks, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus' assessment is, I tell you, that, the, that this man, who has a more humble approach and objective outlook on himself, he is justified rather than the other man who exalts himself. The Pharisee, if you look at it, considered himself righteous by comparing himself to other people rather than what? Fill in the blank there. Now when you do that, you are not getting an objective look at yourself. What you are getting is what's called a subjective look at yourself. Uh, Matthew 7, verses 3 through 5. You probably all know this. I hope you do. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. What you are seeing when you're comparing yourself to another person is not a clear picture. That's why I said it's subjective, not objective. What you are seeing is filtered through the lens of their sin, which is not an upright standard to compare against, is it? And you're seeing it through the lens of your own rotten attitude. So it's just not an objective outlook on yourself. Which is why it's so useless. Galatians 6, verse 4. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. 
That's, that's God's advice. Not his advice. <laughs> He's telling you this is the way. This is the way to look at yourself. Okay? If you are using comparisons to others as a way to evaluate yourself, you stand a good chance of actually reinforcing some of your own bad attitudes and outlooks and assumptions and perspectives instead of rooting them out of your thoughts. For example, uh, comparing yourself to another person is very often driven by envy, isn't it? Envy or covetousness. You know, I have more than they do, or I wish I had what they had. Covetousness, envy and covetousness towards those that we think are better. Or vanity and pride towards those that we think are lesser. Evaluate yourself against what? The word of God. Right. That's the objective standard. Hebrews 4. Hebrews 4. Verses 12 and 13. For the word of God is alive and active sharper than any double-edged sword, like a scalpel. I like to think of it as a scalpel. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Now, it's talking about the Word of God. It's also talking about God, you know, the active, living God, but also His Word, the written testimony, and saying, that written testimony is like a, a scalpel that gets in there, and it can show you stuff. It can be scary. All things are open and laid bare to the living God, and we should pray to God to ask His help to reveal... Uh, what we're doing right, and where we are falling short. And let us remember that it is the Spirit of God. We've talked about this before at length. It is the Spirit of God in us, working with our minds, the human spirit that he's given us, that gives us understanding and washes us clean with his word. We have an annual reminder to examine ourselves. And it's coming up. It's not far away. It's only about uh, three, three weeks? Three and a half? Yeah. Examining ourselves, examining our lives, is the project of a lifetime. It is the project of a lifetime. And it is not something limited solely to a once a year uh, bout of introspection it is something that we should be doing at all times. But we are given a reminder every year. Keep doing this stuff. Examine yourselves. Of course, it's like the high point of self-examination. But it's something we want to be doing all the time. All the time. It's an ongoing and evolving process that never really ends. And at this time of year, again, the Passover is in just a few weeks, we are given a reminder from God to examine ourselves in a thoughtful and an honest manner. And this is how 
we can approach the annual memorial of the new covenant that we have with our creator, which is called the Passover, and do it in a worthy manner. We are God's children, and his goal and purpose is that we learn the material. He wants us to learn the material, the way of righteous living, and when we're lacking, God will bring that to our attention. We work together with him so that we can make the necessary changes. Turn to James 1, verses 22 through 25. Do not merely listen to the word and deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed for what they do. That picture makes me think of someone getting ready to go out on a date. Can you imagine someone, they're getting ready to go out on a date, you know, some, some girl, and she's, well, let's pick on the guys, okay. So it's some guy, he's looking in the mirror, and uh, he hasn't shaved his nose hairs. <laughs> And he looks at himself in the mirror and he goes, that's kind of gross. And then doesn't do anything about it and goes off on the date. That's what I think of when I think of this. Well, not always the nose hairs thing, but you know, guys are gross. So, you know, <laughs> deal with it. But it'd be like that. It's just that dumb. You look at the mirror and you see, oh yeah, yeah, I need to, I need to deal with that. Or like say your hair is not combed or whatever. And then you just... Do, 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 and walk out the door and you haven't done anything about it. It's kind of dumb, isn't it? 1 Corinthians 11. Let's end up where we started. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 28. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. And that is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined, so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. This is a reminder to use God's word and the power of his spirit to examine ourselves and deal with it. Deal with our faults now, okay? So that we will not have to be punished by God along with the world when that day arrives. So examine yourselves and take the Passover.